Well, I actually enjoy being brief as a preacher, and I know that some of you perhaps even now are thinking about all the goodies that uh, lie in wait for you at the bookstore. So we will get into it, but uh, last time I preached at my parents' church, my mum did point out that I, I didn't pray. I wanted to be respectful of their time, but of course the principle is I need God's help. We all need God's help to even appreciate what he has for us this morning and it is always good to pray so shall we pray lord i just ask that you bless your word lord may your name be high and lifted up that's that's all i want father please may we see the lord jesus christ plainly this morning we pray lord that you would do a work in every heart may we indeed be prepared to receive the word of god this morning, bless me as I seek to faithfully proclaim thy word, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy holidays, everyone. We, we've made it. The school holidays are here. I know that some people came up to me this morning and said that they couldn't make it to the main service because uh, they're away, and I pray that this would be a great time of refreshing. Uh, time that you can uh, spend in quality time with the Lord, quality time with the family. And uh, one of the ways that you know that it's holidays is that I'm here. I'm preaching. They've given the, uh, the part-time a bit of a go. I love Ashes Cricket, and I know that puts me in the minority with a lot of people. But, you know historically just before lunch when everyone's going to go off and have a sandwich in times past they took off lily and tomo and all the champions and they put on somebody like greg chapel or ian chapel to bowl or take off warren and mcgrath and put on a greg blood or a darren lehman that's what's happening here okay the amateurs arrived and but the good thing about being a part-timer is that uh pastor brendan graciously gave me a no instructions Right? It's put a, put a kid in the candy store and say, pick whatever you want from the shelf. That's the situation that I was in. So I really had a uh, conversation with the Lord about what I should preach about. And I really felt that this subject, while well, I was under deep conviction that this is what indeed... I needed to speak about, even though I fear that some of what I have to say would be offensive to some. Perhaps there might be even some people that I upset this morning. But like I said, I believe that this is something that I should speak about. I wish to follow on some of the great messages that I've heard my pastors preach from this pulpit on this very subject and if you don't like me that's fine you can uh, you can stand in the queue I'm warning you it's very long but all I'm asking is that you, your conversation goes on between you and God even this morning I, I pray that before God you would just look at his word look at his word as far as his word is concerned in the New Testament, we know that when Paul talked about the church sometimes, like in Colossians, for example, 
He referred to it as being a mystery. That's the word that he used in referring to the church. He referred to it as being a mystery. And what he's talking about that when he uses that term is about a truth that was not revealed plainly in the Old Testament. And the church, it seems, was certainly that. The nature of the church, it seems, it took some time even for the apostles to comprehend the nature of the church. You might remember in the first chapter of Acts, the very last words of Christ to his apostles before he ascended and to his disciples is, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. It's familiar to us and the apostles heard it, the disciples heard it, and yet their response to that initially was very, very Jewish. Their ministry remained very much Jerusalem-centric, and it took God some time to actually teach the lesson to them about what he intended the church to be like, basically Gentile-centred. And he did this in two ways. First of all, he sent great persecution at the hands of someone that you might have heard of, Saul of Tarsus. And when this guy came along, breathing threatenings and seeking to single-handedly wipe out the church of God, they decided that staying at Jerusalem was no longer as attractive a proposition as it, is, as it had previously been. And secondly, through great irony, showing how the gospel can change lives through the ministry of Paul the Apostle. Yes, that very same man. And even while some people were saying, no, you need to be circumcised to be saved, Saul proved that, Paul, I beg your pardon, proved that to be wrong and showed how the Lord was working throughout the known world at the time. And of course, the gospel has gone on to change the world for the better. Any good thing that we see in the world, in society, is historically a result of the gospel. Amen. And the more society turns their back on the gospel, the worse things become. So for the Jews and for the scholars of the Old Testament, the church, as we know it, was something of a mystery. But that is not to say that there are not some things that we can learn about the church from the Old Testament. And yes, even though we are in Genesis chapter 24... The church is very much what I would like to talk to you about this morning. So give me a go, allow me to plead my case, and then you can have your turn. But I think that there are some very real things we can see concerning the church, even as far back in history as Genesis chapter 24. First of all, we see the will of the Father. Everything that we see go, go on in this passage starts with the will of the Father, with Abraham. Abraham, in verse 1, we see him there. We see him in this interaction with his servant, and there's a lot that we can say about this servant. But Abraham asked this servant to do something that Abraham is taking very, very seriously. 
And we can see that in verse 2, and this is where it's a little bit awkward because I don't want this to be the takeaway, but what we see here as far as the oath and what the servant has to do with Abraham's body to make this oath, this is serious stuff and basically unknown in our culture. The connotations of this oath is that if this servant does not fulfill this oath, the yet unborn descendants of Abraham can pursue him over this. Uh, he risks retribution. Abraham's mind, as far as all this is concerned, is very, very serious. And what we see going on here in the early part of Genesis chapter 24 is serious stuff. There's no real way to describe it. And of course, it's about finding the blessed bride. It's about this commission that Abraham gives to this servant to find a wife for his beloved son, Isaac. So this whole thing about the bride, this blessed bride for the beloved son, the will of all this starts with the father. And the analogy I believe that we can strongly take from Genesis 24 is that our heavenly father, he takes the church very very seriously perhaps you do perhaps you don't but we can say as far as the heart of god is concerned this is serious serious business the blessed bride the church of god now we go on to the work of the servant where we know that it all starts with the father this is abraham's initiative but as the passage goes on and we read the verse 20 verses, and I don't know whether you know, so I was trying to rush it through because it's a long narrative. Just be thankful that I spared you the whole chapter. The whole chapter goes 67 verses. It's a very, very long account. But most of this chapter is concerned with the actions of this servant. And, and these, the actions of this servant, of course, are very, very faithful. But I don't know whether you picked this up. I don't know whether you had a moment as you were reading this. You can actually read the whole 60-odd verses. What did I just say? Oh, I'm getting old. 67 verses of this account. And what you notice is that never at any point in time is this servant named. In everything he does, in this tremendous undertaken that he's entrusted with he's never once named is this guy in a witness protection program what in the world is going on here as far as his identity is concerned i don't think it's a mystery at the point when abraham thought that he was not going to have descendants earlier on in genesis he freely names his heir as being Eliezer of Damascus because this man was his chief steward and there's absolutely no reason when it to believe that when it comes to this serious commission that Abraham would have entrusted this to any other man in doing all the reading that I've tried to do to preach the word of God faithfully to you I've never met any commentator that's not comfortable in saying Yes, this man is definitely 
Eliezer of Damascus, then why isn't he named? Well, when we consider the bride being gathered to the Son, when we consider the gospel going out to all the world, saving people, changing people, calling them, we know that this is the work of the Spirit. And I know that I'm going to potentially upset a few people of a certain persuasion, but nowhere in the Bible will you see the Holy Spirit bringing attention to himself. And rather than me trying to prove that to you, the word of God is always the answer. Can we quickly turn to Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Of course, we do have to get there quickly. But Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. And perhaps some of you have already realised and identified that this is the account of our Lord's baptism. And we pick it up from verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptised, went out straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit of God, descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I well please. Directly after Jesus' baptism, we see representation of the Holy Trinity here. We see the Son. We see the Spirit, we see the voice from heaven, we see God the Father represented, but there is absolutely no doubt who was taking centre stage here. It's not the dove, it's the Son. It's all about the beloved Son. So this servant is not named. He is in type here of the Holy Spirit. And we need to appreciate once again what the church needs to God when we appreciate the undertaking that this man had as far as getting the bride was concerned. I've talked a little bit about my, my age. I know I have parents that live on the New South Wales Victorian border and there was a point in time where I could uh, do the six-hour car journey quite comfortably. And I realise now that those days are gone. Uh, even with all the mod cons that we have and all the stuff we have in our cars, I find that uncomfortable as an older guy. Well, consider an 800-kilometre journey by camel. Some of you here have tried to ride a camel in Israel. And you're happy for the experience, but you're also happy to get off and get away from the smell and get away from the coarse, coarseness and the bumpiness and everything else that that camel represented. This is what was in front of this servant. And yet, of course, he undertook this. He undertook the camels. He undertook the environment. He undertook the danger. Like the Magi that we see in the New Testament, he had goodies with him. And it's logical that even though he's the only one mentioned, he would have had people come with him. This was a dangerous thing that he was doing. And if we can perhaps have a little bit of admiration 
for this unnamed servant and what he went through to obtain the blessed bride, if you will, then perhaps we can have some sort of appreciation of what a wonderful thing it is that the gospel has gone throughout all the world, that God has sorted out, has saved us, has called us together. I can see you all, uh, well, kind of, I am short-sighted. I can see something that looks like you, okay? Can we settle in that? And shapes, sizes, different backgrounds, different ages. You come from different cultures, different countries. What a glorious thing it is that the Holy Spirit has called us to be part of this local assembly. And yet I fear that this is something that perhaps because it's familiar to us, has also become contemptuous to us. Or perhaps we're just not fulfilling our function in the local church. But if you can appreciate the work of this servant, perhaps you can come to appreciate the work of the Spirit. It's no accident, brethren, that we are here. It is the work of God. Thirdly, as I try and find my outline, there it is. The waiting of the sun. Now, as I said, this is a very, very long passage and it does have some unusual features. We are used to the sun being front and centre, but on this occasion, we do not see Isaac, the son, mentioned at all until verse 62. So the chapter, if you like, goes on and on. There's a detailed account of this servant's endeavour and this servant's success in finding the bride, but Isaac actually doesn't come into the picture until verse 62. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as most unusual. Why, how could that be? Well, there's a very, very good reason for that, because the last time we saw Isaac was actually in chapter 22, which isn't too far away from the Bible, and uh, I'm not going to read from there, but if you're unfamiliar with that, that was about the time that Abraham offered up Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is one of the strongest Old Testament pictures of the heart of God when he gave his beloved son on our behalf. That's the last time that we see Isaac in Scripture up to this point. So the type is that at this point in time, Christ's death for our sins, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, this is all taken place and this points to the time when the Lord will take us home. That's when we will see Christ. When the bride is gathered unto him. And of course, that is something that the Lord is very much looking forward to. We are told at the end of Genesis 24 that Isaac was actually meditating in the field when, when the bride returned. He was, that's where he had his quiet time. He was talking to God and no doubt, given the situation, he, he had a lot to say. But all of his thoughts, no doubt, revolved around this event. We've already mentioned the fact that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming quickly. But the point is, 
are we ready? I know that we've left the Lord's table and I've gone from there to here, but some of the thoughts that we had at the Lord's table are still relevant. When the bridegroom, bring, oh yeah, when the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white? The, the son is waiting. The son is waiting to receive his bride. And it has been, I know, for some time, some of us are older, but let us never be contentious. The sun is waiting. That glorious reality will one day dawn upon us. I just pray in the case of each and every one of us, it will not dawn too late. The witness of the bride. Perhaps you've already figured out, you've already identified that we are talking, that we have seen the Father in this passage. We have seen the Spirit in this passage. We have seen the Son in this passage. And perhaps you've already figured out where you come in. You come in with Rebecca. You come in with the bride. Right from the outset, Abraham makes a couple of things very, very clear to his steward, to his servant. First of all, he says, this bride cannot be one of the daughters of Canaan. Makes it clear from the outset. This was part of the solemn oath that this servant enters into. No daughters of Canaan. Was this a racist statement of some kind? Not at all. The daughters of Canaan were not believers. Therefore, they are off the list. It was not going to happen. Abraham made a second stipulation abundantly clear. The servant said, well, if, what if I fail? Can I take Isaac and bring him to the area of Mesopotamia? Can I bring Isaac to the world? Absolutely not. It's the obligation of the bride to come out from that place to the bridegroom. And even though the type there is us, Seeing the Lord when he rushes us away, we need to acknowledge the wicked, wicked age in which we live. Not just sadly for the world, but for the church. This is a church age in which the church in general refuses to come out for the bridegroom. That is happy in the world, that is prosperous in the world, that is more than happy to assume worldly values. And of course, if Rebecca had refused to leave everything behind for his bridegroom, then this story obviously would have had a greatly different ending. But Rebecca is willing, and so we should be. Perhaps you didn't expect to be talking this morning about the church from Genesis 24, but believe me that there is a lot that we can learn about Rebecca. And perhaps to learn a little bit more about Rebecca, we have to go back and talk about some camels. Let's go back there again. I've been doing a little bit of camel research, and you might know why in just a moment, but... I thought that Australia was uh, number one as far as camels are concerned because in the early days the camels basically was the way that they traversed the desert then they let the camels loose. But apparently Somalia has more camels than we do, which is scandalous. 
We need to beat them in cricket immediately. We need to be number one, but apparently as far as total population of camels is concerned, Somalia is number one. We have the highest feral camel population. It's a real issue for some people in various parts. It is said that the camels actually occupy th about 37% of the Northern Territory. There's a lot of them. But the reason why I want to talk about camels is that we see initially the way the servant was going to identify the blessed bride is that he was going to ask her for a drink of water and the Hebrew word was sip. Okay, literally when we see him ask Rebecca for a drink, all he's asking for is a sip. But Rebecca was going to go above and beyond. It's very, very clear in the account that this steward had 10 camels. That's a lot of camels, 10 camels. Do you know that one thirsty camel, and I'm just talking about one, and we can safely presume that after an 800 kilometre journey, these are mighty thirsty camels. And there's 10 of them. Okay, 10 camels with their tongues hung, hanging out and a thirsty camel, camel can drink 75 litres of water. Times that by 10 and you can appreciate the kind of ballpark that we're playing in. And it's very, very clear that all that Rebecca had was a pitcher of water. That's all that she had. In other words, to actually offer to water these camels. This is a serious undertaking on Rebecca's part. And as we think about Kids Club, I appreciate Kids Club for a lot of reasons, but one thing that I really appreciate is the effort that some people go, go through to accomplish this. And perhaps I'll get in trouble for saying this, and I knew I was going to get in trouble anyway, but... Many years ago, this beloved lady that it's at the centre of Kids Club every year, I won't mention her name, but she, you know that she's had serious health problems. And there she is where nobody else can see and she's grabbing a bookshelf and she's steadying herself because she's having a spell in the middle of Kids Club. As far as I know, I was the only one that saw that. She steadied herself, she continued because it's the gospel. What is the role of the church? Two things. It's, it's magnifying the name of the Lord. It's preaching the gospel of the Lord. It's furthering the program of the Lord. This is the church. These are the things about the church should be concerned with. The question is, as far as those two issues are concerned, how important are they to you? How important is it to us collectively? Because we can say one thing that's very, very easy and we can do another. In Rebecca, we see a picture of industriousness. We see a picture of graciousness. We see a picture of kindness. She was no un, under no obligation whatsoever to undertake this massive project that was before her. And she did it. She did it for a stranger. 
And sometimes it's easier to be kind to a stranger than it is to a family member, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about. There's nicks and there's cuts and there's old wounds and there's old hurts. Have we stopped being the people that are willing to pick up that picture for our brother and sister in Christ? Let's turn over to the end of, of the passage just to say one more thing to, about Rebecca that I believe is very striking. In verse 64, like I said, Isaac is introduced in verse 62. In verse 64, Rebecca lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac. She lighted off the camel, for she said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. Now, like I said, some expressions of old we don't necessarily dismiss, even though they don't come from the Bible. Some of them are very good, and some traditions are very good. The tradition of the veil, as far as the bride is concerned, we see Rebecca observing that tradition here, and the veil that we're talking about not only covered her face, but her whole body. And this was done in two ways. First of all, this was actually a sign of respect on Rebecca's part, and also it was meant to be a reflection of her modesty. And modesty is something that the church hardly talks about today. Purity, these are concepts that are lost. And, let, and yet, if I am able to convince you this morning that Rebecca is a model of the church, it means that these sort of issues are the sort of issues that we need to be concerned with, even this morning. Are we modest? Is our life in check? Are we respectful? And now we come to the word in our local church. I've given you the word, and now to use an old expression, the ball is in your court. How do we really feel about the local church? Because, like I said, I'm not preaching this to be popular. I know that even though the Bible uses this glorious analogy where the church is supposed to function as the body. Just think of all the things my body is doing all at once seamlessly, even at this point of time. My hands are going like this. I don't know exactly why, but they are. I'm breathing. I'm perspiring lightly, not in a gross way, but that happens. I'm standing. I'm looking at you. I'm hearing my own voice. I'm, I'm projecting my voice. There's a lot going on here seamlessly to the extent that I don't even have to think about it. The body. And that is what the church is supposed to resemble. Seamlessly working together for the glory of God and for the sake of his program, which is the gospel. But how does it work in reality? How does it even work in this local assembly? 
It seems as though we don't so much at times work as the body, as federal parliament, where there's people sitting on the cross benches, uncommitted, and at times it seems as even a leader of the opposition. And we certainly haven't learned these patterns from Christ. And I get it. As I said, when it comes to family, we all have nicks and cuts. I was thinking of the analogy where you're there with the people that you love and I only meet my family three or four times a year and they all roll in from different directions to Jindra, all the in-laws and outlaws and what have you. And you know that we're not all quite on the, on the same page. Some of them have actually walked away from the Lord and turned their back on church. Some of them are unsaved. And every so often you might be sitting at a meal and something is said and you just feel like a grand piano hits you. You can't believe that that was said. Who you thought you were in front of your family is not who you are at all. And everyone else is just sitting there. Oh, could you pass the sauce? Does anyone want crackling? And you're devastated. So you go to your room. You look at your mirror. At yourself in the mirror. You gather yourself. Maybe you cry a tear or two. And then you turn around and you go to leave the room and then you realise your hand's still shaking. So you have to take another moment and then finally you reach for that door handle and it's fair to say that what happens when you leave that room could very much shape the fate of your family. As Jim Berg said something that has been such a blessing to me, I am not free to choose my circumstances, but I am free to choose my responses. And perhaps listening to this analogy, you'd say, well, something's wrong there because in that analogy, that person should have sunk to their knees. And you're absolutely right. But how much of that do we see in the relationships between the church? Because quite frankly, I haven't seen much of that behaviour. I haven't seen people sink to their knees, but rather jump on their high horse or their hobby horse. And they've got this issue and that issue. And in a way, the issues are immaterial because the heart of it all is that I'm right and you're wrong and I'm not going to stop until you admit that. And once again, we have not so learned Christ. I'd like to give you a couple of more thoughts from the Bible uh, before we conclude, if that's all right. Could we please turn to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2? Philippians 4 verse 2. And here we see... Two women being mentioned by Paul with difficult names. I'm sure I could pronounce it, but <laughs> not sure whether I'm going to try. And I'm sure that if Paul was there physically and could sit these women down, these women, as the proverb goes, could talk Paul's leg off about this other woman and what this other woman has done. And I'm sure that there would be tears. And I'm sure that there would be blame on both sides. 
but Paul does not even talk about the issues. As Ryrie says right here in my Bible, what the divinity was between these two women is not stated. Nor does Paul enter into it. He simply says, I beseech these two that they may be of the same mind in the Lord. And isn't this the issue? Isn't this the primary issue above all issues? Doesn't it send a little bit of a chill your way to think that the work of the Lord is impacted by your hobby horse or your high horse? Psalm 133. Psalm 133. I'll give you a bit from the New Testament. I'll give you a bit from the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is in focus here because the mention is of Aaron that represents the old priesthood. But I believe there's more, and I'll tell you why. Behold, in verse 1 of Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, for it is like the precious ointment upon the head, and ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Once again, we can't appreciate how precious this ointment is. But we know about the Magi, we know about, about the Christ. They brought gold, frankincense, myrrh, three valuable things. Myrrh is such an ointment. In that environment, stuff that smells good was valuable. Okay, It could sit there alongside gold and not feel devalued. It was important. And unity amongst the brethren is like the precious ointment. Poured on Aaron's head as he was anointed as priest, running down his beard, running down his clothes. The, the beautiful aroma affects Aaron, affects the people, affects the surroundings. Everything and everyone is benefited by this aroma. And it's the aroma of unity amongst the brethren. I'd like to conclude with James chapter 4 and verse 6. And can I just say as we turn there, this verse is actually repeated in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. As, as I've already mentioned, when a verse is repeated, it means it's important. It's the way that God on, underlines a concept. When it's repeated, it's important. And in verse 6 of James chapter 4 we read, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And of course we're reading this in English, in the Greek, in the original manuscript, when it says God resisteth the proud, the, the imagery, if you like, is that of warfare. It's that of catapults and wolves. There's serious Warfare going on here. This is God's attitude towards the proud heart that might exist even in the congregation this morning. And while you continue to, to resist, God will continue to work. But once again, we need to ask the question, is this furthering God's program? Is this glorifying his name in this local assembly? Don't you think 
that given everything we've seen about the Trinity and how thoroughly invested they are, even in this local testimony, that God deserves your unconditional surrender? Don't you think? Don't you think the emphasis is on you getting things right with God and with your brethren? One day we will see him face to face. And I pray that on that day you will not be ashamed that you never entirely surrendered your relationships to God. May we, like the mighty army of the Church of God, march in step. Even this morning, we are about to sing it, but I hope that you believe it, that you can say this truly in your heart this morning, like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading, we're the saints of trod, we are not divided. All one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. I'd like to invite Jeremy to lead us in the singing of the final hymn. Thank you.